So good to be with you guys tonight, excited for this study that we're going to be doing in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. It's such a rich, rich study. And I want to give you a little bit of an idea of what we're going to be doing here on on Wednesday night. So every Wednesday night, things are going to be a little bit different. We'll always have worship, and then we're going to split up, and we will always have a Bible study. But after the Bible study, we're going to do some different things. There might be some nights that we're going to break up into some prayer groups and pray about what we talked about that night. There's going to be some nights where we'll break up into discussion groups, and we're going to talk about, we'll go through some questions and kind of talk about, you know, how the Lord, how the Word applies to us as men um, in our daily lives. We're going to, sometimes we're going to actually have a panel discussion where we'll get some of the guys that are sitting out here, up here, and, and just to be able to hear from some different perspectives on, you know, how they're applying these things that we're going to be learning from the life of Nehemiah um, to their lives and in their families. And uh, we, how many of you were with us when we did this in the book of Titus? How many of you were with us? Wasn't that a fun time? And uh, just really love some of those panel discussions that we had. And so, so that's going to be our approach here on um, Wednesday nights going through the book of Nehemiah. Does that sound good? Okay, three of you like that. Uh, the rest of you, does that sound good to you guys? Okay, all right, cool. I'm excited. I love to mix it up. And so um, if you would, Nehemiah chapter 1, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into this. Lord, I thank you, God, for these men who have come out on this Wednesday night, who have taken the time out of their schedules to come and be together with other men and to get into your word and to seek your face. And, and Lord, we, we thank you for this study in the book of Nehemiah. Such an incredible man that you used, and there's so much that we can learn from him. So God, I pray that you would bless this time that we have together, that you would, your word would just come alive in our hearts, that you would give us wisdom on how to apply it to our lives and so we give you um, this time tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Nehemiah has many different facets that minister to us. It's an excellent study on revival, because in the book of Nehemiah, we see how, how God takes a broken down people and brings them back together and restores them. The name Nehemiah actually means the Lord has comforted. And so Nehemiah is also a wonderful type of the Holy Spirit, rebuilding and restoring the broken walls of human lives. And so it's a beautiful picture of that. The book of Nehemiah is also an excellent study in leadership. In fact, if you are involved or interested in leadership, I don't think there's any finer study than the book of Nehemiah to go through. Because in the book of Nehemiah, we see this great picture of how to begin and complete any work that God has called us to. There's so many incredible leadership lessons in the book of Nehemiah. In fact, our tagline for this study is this, that everyone is building something. And you know, that's true. 
All of us right now are building our walks with the Lord, right? We are constantly in that, that, that area of just growing in our walks with Jesus. Um, many of you are in that place where you're building your families, that you are seeking to pour into your wife and your kids and, and building them up in the Lord. Some of you are involved in building in ministry, that you're serving in different ways and you're building and seeking to build a, a ministry that you are involved in. All of us should be thinking about building a legacy. What are we going to be leaving behind to you know, our kids and grandkids and our spiritual kids and those who are paying attention to us? Some of you are maybe building a business right now. And all of us are building a reputation. And we need to realize that and understand that. And so the book of Nehemiah is very, very applicable for us in that. So all of us are building something. And in the book of Nehemiah, we also learn some great insights concerning spiritual warfare and spiritual battle. And so the purpose of this study is that we're not going to go through every single chapter. There's... In this study, we're going to mainly focus our attention in these eight weeks on the building and the battling that takes place, and not so much what happens after the wall is done. We'll touch on that a little bit, but we're going to kind of go a little bit deep dive into what what leads up to the wall being completed. So if you would, chapter one, follow along. I'm going to read through the whole chapter, and then we'll start. Uh, making some observations. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, And concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. Note that, underline that, that's very, very important. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive to your and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants. And I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house Father's house and I have sinned and we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of them, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer. That last line is very important to take notice of. Nehemiah says that he was the king's cupbearer. And so he is a Jew who is living in Persia. And to understand what's happening here, we need a little bit of history. And, and so we go back to 605 BC when the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, invaded Israel and they ransacked Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And God allowed them to do that. And he actually warned that that this invasion was coming because of years of rebellion on, on behalf of the people of Israel. They had been rebelling against God. They had been involved in immorality and idolatry. They had given themselves over to those things. And the nation as a whole was just very, very corrupted. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Sounds a bit like our nation, doesn't it? So to wake up his people and to get their attention, God would allow them to be invaded. And so one of these times happens in 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians invaded. And during that invasion, the temple was destroyed and the walls of the city were broken down and burned with fire. And so whenever the walls of a city would be broken down, it would leave the people in a very vulnerable place. Think of it in this way. If, if at your house, all of the windows were blown out and, and all of the doors were knocked in. And so you're going to sleep tonight and there's no doors and there's no windows. Everything is just wide open for any critter or any robber or anybody that wants to come in you know, and vandalize. You probably wouldn't sleep that good tonight, would you, if that was the case? Or you might be sleeping there, you know, with your shotgun next to you or something, if that was the case. Well, that's what it was like for the people of Israel with their walls down. It left them in a very, very vulnerable um, state and place. Now, during that invasion, many of the Israelites were taken captive. They were hauled off to Babylon, where they would spend 70 years in captivity. This is where we get the whole story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were some of those young men that were taken captive. And after the nation of Israel had been taken captive by Babylon, sometime after that, the Babylonians were invaded and overthrown by the Persians. And the Persians were much nicer to the Jewish people. And so in in Babylon, the people of Israel were captives, but in Persia, they were prospering. In Persia, they had jobs, they had houses, they, they lived a fairly normal life. And it was during this captivity in Persia that Nehemiah was born. He was born to Jewish people, Jewish parents, I mean, in exile. So so Nehemiah, I went, this is important to note. He's 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 never been to Jerusalem. He was born in Persia. He was born in captivity. And Nehemiah, as he gets older, he gets a government job. 
And he rose in the ranks, and he ends up serving, as we're told here in chapter 1, as the cupbearer to the king. And being the king's cupbearer was a tremendous honor in that time in history. See, originally the the king's cupbearer was the one who sat next to him and would sample all of his food and all of the drink, all the wine that they brought to him. Because, you know, a king was always under the, the threat of somebody wanting to assassinate him. And one of the greatest ways that they would do that would be to poison their food or poison their drink. So the king had a cupbearer, and they'd bring the food, and they'd put the plate over to the cupbearer, and he would, you know, take a little bite of the steak and, and a little bite of, you know, you know, one of the other things, and he'd, you know, eat it, and the king and everybody else would watch And they were watching to see if he was going to kill over and die. He'd take a little sip of the wine and they would watch, you know, and when, and when he didn't uh, pass out or didn't fall over and die, it'd be like, all right, party, let's go. And the king would eat and everybody would feast. But that was the job of the cupbearer. So initially that's what that position was about. But over time, as time progressed, this, this position really grew to be a prestigious position. It was a position of, of dignity in the Persian Empire because it was during this time, I mean, the guy who was the cupbearer was next to the king all the time. He always had the king's ear. He would become one of the king's closest confidants and, and he would become one of the king's closest advisors and he would become, in many, many ways, in many, many situations, he'd become like the king's right-hand guy. You could maybe even look at him as like the chief of staff. And so this is the position that Nehemiah has risen to under the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia. But the whole time that the Jewish people were living in exile in Babylon and in Persia, there was a remnant of Jewish people who were living back home in Israel. But back home in Israel, the capital city was in a bad place. It was in bad shape. The temple was destroyed. The walls of the city were torn down. And so if you went around the city, it just looked like rubble. Kind of imagine that in your mind. Just, Just rubble everywhere. A little more history. Now, King Cyrus was the king of Persia who overthrew the Babylonians. And Cyrus had compassion on the Jewish people who were living there in Babylon. And so he actually let, get this, 50,000 of them go back home. Go back home to Jerusalem. And and there was this contingent that went back home with the goal in mind, with the idea that they were going to go home and they were going to rebuild the temple. But once they got home, back to Jerusalem, a problem occurred. Instead of dedicating their time and their focus and their attention to rebuilding the temple, the people focused their time and energy and resources on building their own houses. And this is when God raises up the prophet Haggai. And Haggai writes in his book, and God sends him to kind of get the people back on track. And his message was this, why are you focusing all of your attention, your time, your energy, and resources on your own houses when the temple, God's house, is lying in ruins? Basically, his message was, your priorities are all out of whack. So the Lord raised up another leader by the name of Zerubbabel. 
And Zerubbabel comes on the scene, and he helps this rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Well, 57 years later, a second group of much smaller groups, 1,700 people from Persia, Jewish people, head back with a guy by the name of Ezra. Who's heard of Ezra? Okay, there's a good book in the Bible named Ezra. Ezra will pop up in this story. Ezra was a priest, and he's leading the people back in order to help establish worship again in this new temple. And, and that was you know, the role that he was going to play in this. But there was still the problem of the walls being torn down. And so the people were vulnerable and it affected the worship. And so everything was just kind of in haywire in Israel. And people didn't want to go back because they didn't think that it was safe. Well, Nehemiah is a contemporary to Ezra. And here in chapter 1, Nehemiah gets a message that rocks his world. Now, Persia, again, picture this, is like 1,500 miles from Jerusalem. So he's far away. And we read here in this first chapter, and this is what I want you to see tonight, six things of the kind of person that God works through. This is what we're going to see about Nehemiah. And the first thing we see is the kind of person that God uses is someone who gets a burden. Look at verse 1 again. It says, and it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, and, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Verse 4, and so it was when I heard these things that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I want you to note that. Nehemiah hears about what's going on back in Israel, back in Jerusalem, how the people are in distress, how the people are in reproach, how the people there are just, just, they're down and out and they're just not thriving and they're, they're in this place of just, just great agony and his heart breaks. And he wept and he mourned for many days. When Nehemiah heard about what was going on in Jerusalem, his heart was broken. He didn't say, wow, that's a bummer. Glad I'm not there. Glad I'm here. You want to go see my new chariot? You know, he didn't say that. No, his heart was broken and he mourned and he wept for many days. And he's never been there. Think about this. He's mourning over a place he's never been and people he's never even met. But it touched his heart. I experienced this. I bet some of you did when the war broke out in Ukraine. That war that's been going on just forever now. But when it first broke out, and having been over to Eastern Europe, never been to Ukraine though, 
and knowing some people who were over there, but then just seeing the, the pictures and the reports of these people and these families having to flee their country, my heart broke. My heart was burdened. It was like, oh gosh, that is horrible. We need to do something. And it was awesome to see how the, you, you guys, the church, stepped up and we, we sent thousands and thousands of dollars over there to people who were doing you know, work and sending aid and helping those people. But, but our, our heart, you know, it happens. It, it probably happened for some of you with, with the fires in, in Maui. I've been there. I've walked on those streets, eaten in some of those restaurants, had some friends that were there, and, 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 and you see that just it's all gone, and it just it breaks your heart. That kind of rubble, that kind of of disaster, and and it just breaks your heart. Well, Nehemiah, as we'll see as the story goes, he's a tough guy. He's a guy who isn't easily intimidated. He's not a, a big emotional guy, but this hits him so hard that his heart is broken. Why? Because his heart was breaking for the people of God. And this is really a key sign of a godly leader. The type of person that God uses is that they're more concerned for God's people than their own personal needs and their own ambitions and their own goals and their own concerns. And we'll see this over and over again with Nehemiah. This is the kind of man that he is, is that he puts aside what's best for himself and instead chooses what's best for God's people. And I want you to make note of that. We see this played out over and over again in the book where Nehemiah hears of the condition of the people in Jerusalem and his heart is broken. And I have a question for you tonight. When you see people around you who are going through difficulty and distress, does your heart break? There's a lot of people right now, isn't there, in our, in our society, in all of our spheres of influence that are, that are struggling right now. A couple weeks ago on one Sunday, I had two different people, one who has been in our church for a long time, but two different people that came up to me and told me that they had attempted suicide in the last few months. There's a lot of hurt going on, guys. There's a lot of people that are struggling around us. A lot of people that are, that are going through, that are just being pressed. You know, a few weeks ago on Sunday, we were talking about just how we, we get pressed and we had a time of, of prayer for those who are just feeling pressed. And, and all up front here, there were probably, you know, 10 or 12 or 13 people that were up here praying and all during the end of the service just flooded with people that, that's me, I'm feeling pressed. Does our heart break when we see that? You know, ministry often starts right there. It's seeing the needs around you and your heart breaking. And you're like, I I can't ignore this. In fact, I like to say this. This is when you know. You might want to write this down. This is when you know a burden is from the Lord. When you get a burden for something, this is is when you know that it's from the Lord. It does not go away. It doesn't go away. You You can try to ignore it. You can try to, you know, put it on the shelf. You can try to say, I don't have time for that. And it just keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. It doesn't go away. That's God grabbing a hold of your heart. 
We'll see next week that Nehemiah's heart is burdened for three months. Three months. And finally, the king's going to notice. But we'll see that next week. We're not going to get a hold of ourselves. So it starts with a burden. It starts with compassion. The second mark of the kind of person that God uses is that they're prone to fast and pray when they see a need. Notice he says, and I was fasting praying before the God of heaven. So not only do they not ignore the need that they see, but but they don't go into fix-it mode either. You know, that was my tendency early on. How many of you are fixers? (laughs) I can be a fixer, man. I see a situation and my first tendency can be to just, you know, want to go in and fix that situation. My wife comes to me with a problem and I want to fix it. And she doesn't need me to fix it. She just wants me to listen to her. You know, do you you guys, how many of you are married here? How many of you are married here? Okay. All you guys that are married, do, do you know sometimes your wife just needs to vent? Do you guys know that? She just needs to get it out, you know? She doesn't need you to fix it. She just needs you to listen. And so I've learned to do this with my wife. She'll she'll be going on something, and I'll just say, okay, just stop, stop. Just just let me know this first. Just just tell me this. I'm I'm really interested in what you're gonna say, but but are you needing me to do anything right now? Or you just want me to listen, you know? And she'll be like, I just want you to listen. Okay, great, go for it, you know? And and uh, but but like I can go into that mode. And when I would go into that mode of just, you know, wanting to fix things, I would be like a bulldozer, like a bull in a china shop, wrecking things. I'm not fixing anything. I'm just wrecking things because I'm getting ahead of myself and getting ahead of the Lord. How many of you have done that before? All right. Okay. I'm not the only one. All right. So we have to learn. And this is so great. What does Nehemiah do? He prays and he fasts. He pauses. He's not going into fix-it mode. He's not going to play. He's praying and he's fasting. And fasting is that thing that we do to align our hearts with the heart of God. Did you know that fasting, the denying yourself of food, and, and when you're denying yourself of food, taking that time that you normally would be eating to be praying and seeking God, that's like taking your spiritual antenna and just bringing it more in tune. That's what fasting does. That's what he does here. Great example for us. And I want you to notice his prayer. Look at verse 5. He says, and I, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel. Note that constant prayer. This was his mode. And this is the third mark of the kind of person that God uses, is that somebody who has a right view of God. And I want you to see see this. He prays, Lord God of heaven. So he's viewing God in his sovereignty there. He's, He's viewing God as God is the one who's on the throne. Even though there's this chaos going on in Israel, God is still on the throne. He's sovereign. He's the Lord of heaven. He calls him a great and awesome God. So he's viewing, he sees his God as big and powerful. And that's going to come into play in this story, his view of God. And I want to ask you, how big is your God? Is there any problem in your life that is too big for God? The answer to that should be no, Pastor Rob. 
Is there anything that he can't do? I love the story. I've shared it before, but it's worth repeating. It, there's a Bible commentator, a great Bible commentator. If you like to read, this is a guy worth reading, Donald Gray Barnhouse. And when he graduated from Princeton University, when it was much more of a, a Christian college in, in that day, um, he came back after being gone a year to preach at the, the college. And his theology professor came and he sat in the very front row to listen to him. And after he was done, he came up and he said, you know, hi, Donald, so good to see you again. And he said, you know, when my students come back to preach here at the university, I come to listen to him. I only come one time, but I just come to listen to him because I want to see if they're a big godder or a little godder. And Barnhouse looked at him and was like, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, some of my students come back and, and, and they're little godders. They have a little God. Their God can't do anything. He can't part the Red Sea. He can't heal the leper. He can't heal the blind. He doesn't answer prayer. I mean, that's their, their, their God. And they're, they're little godders. And it's so discouraging. But he said, but Donald, you are a big godder. You believe in a big God and you're going to do well. And Barnhouse did. He had a very, very fruitful ministry. But I ask you, are you a big godder? Is there nothing that, that comes into your life that is too big for your God? You see, people who have big, a big view of God, they pray big prayers. Do you pray big prayers? Do you have a God who, who can do miracles? Do you have a God who can... There's nothing that is, that, is, that is too hard for a God. Our God, he's unstoppable. But I'll tell you this. My problem has never, ever been that I've ever doubted God's ability to do anything. I believe in my heart. God, he's able to do anything that he wants to do. I believe that with all of my heart. But there's a lot of times where I wrestle with, does he want to do that for me? I'm not, I'm not wrestling with or doubting his ability, but a lot of times I'm doubting his willingness. And that's why what, what Nehemiah says next is so important because he sees this God that he's praying to who's the, on the throne. He's great and awesome, and he's also the God who keeps his promises. He says, you keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. He, he's, he's a covenant-keeping. Our God's a promise keeper. Do you realize that? Isn't that so good to realize? He loves us. His heart for us. There was that time when Jesus was talking to his disciples and, and he was saying, guys, you don't need to worry about your provision. God's going to take care of you. And he gives the analogy. He says, like the same way that he takes care of the birds, he's going to take care of you. Same way he takes care of the flowers. He dresses the flowers. He's going to take care of you. That's the kind of God he is. That's the kind of father he is. And then there in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, he says this. He says, do not fear, little flock, because it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I tell you, the first time I ever read that verse, I about fell out of my chair. Because that was not my view of God. My view of God was he was the one that I had to earn his favor. I had to earn his blessing. That if I wasn't, you know, doing everything and keeping in line, that I, I wasn't going to get anything from him. And he's saying here, it's, it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
In other words, it's your heavenly Father's good pleasure to bless you. I hope you believe that. We need to believe that, men. I think when we think about you know, ourselves as dads, as dads, we love to bless our kids, don't we? As grandpas, we love to bless our grandkids. We love that. My grandson, Josiah, turned six. Actually, he's turning six um, next month. But we were celebrating. He was going to be celebrating his birthday this past Sunday by going with some of his little buddies, little school buddies, to the Hot Wheels Monster Jam Glow party um, at some place down in San Diego, and he's gone to two. He love he's a he loves monster trucks like big time. He has a whole bunch of them, and he's like all all into it. Just loved. He was so excited, and a couple of his little buddies from school were going to meet him there, and he was just so excited. But Sunday morning, he got sick. He was throwing up. Couldn't go. And man. I heard that in my heart, just broke for my little buddy. And I just went into grandpa mode, and I'm, I'm getting online. Where's the next one, you know? And I'm like, I don't care where it is. I'll fly with him there. And, you know, that's what I'm thinking. I'm taking my little buddy to see his monster. And Denise, my wife, brought me back down to reality. You are not flying anywhere with your grandson. He's only six years old. I mean, come on, you know, he'll get over it. And he did. We, we asked him and he was like, you know, hey, are you sad about not going? He goes, uh, it's okay. Just as long as I get a lot of presents on my birthday. That's what he said. <laughs> But, but that's that, that, the heart, you know, the heart of a, a dad. It's like, oh, we want, that's, that's God's heart toward us. So the kind of person that God works through is someone who is burdened by the pain and distress that they see around them. And they respond to that by prayer and, and fasting. And, and they have a right view of God, that they see him as, as the almighty, the God who's on the throne, who's awesome in power, but also is a, a promise keeper. And the fourth thing, not only is they have a right view of God, but a right view of the problem. Look at verse 6. He says, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned, and we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah knew what the problem was. It was sin. The nation went into exile and captivity because of their sin and rebellion. The temple was torn down in Jerusalem because of their sin and rebellion. The walls of the city laid in ruins because of their sin and rebellion. But don't miss this. Nehemiah doesn't say, this is all because the children of Israel, my ancestors, have sinned. No, what does he say again? Look at verse 6, the second part. My father's house and I have sinned. Now this is heavy, guys. And I really want you to think and kind of press into this for a minute. Nehemiah wasn't even alive when the nation fell into idolatry and immorality 
that led to their captivity. He wasn't even alive. He hadn't even been born yet. And he had never even been to Israel or to Jerusalem. But here he takes full ownership for the sins of the generations who came before him. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Nehemiah realized that as good of a guy as he was, that he was still a sinner. He knew in his heart that he had sinned as well, that he wasn't perfect. Maybe not in the same way that these people did, but he knew what he was capable of. I remember years back when my son was just a little guy, my son Aaron, he's 33 years old now, has a little boy of his own, but we were out in the backyard of our house in Oceanside pulling weeds one day. And, and, and Aaron was just not having it. He was like, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? And being a pastor, you know, I said, well, you know why we have weeds, uh, you know, Aaron? It's part of the fall. And I started talking to him about, you know, the fall and Adam. I thought this would be a great teaching moment. And his response was, stupid, Adam. But you know what? The whole point of the Bible is we wouldn't have fared any better. We would have done the same thing. And this is what, this is what Nehemiah is recognizing. He knew that he was a sinner and he owned it. It's like Paul the Apostle saying, except for the grace of God, there go I. You know, I was talking to this pastor that I've been mentoring who's up in Oregon, and he asked me, what are some of the safeguards that you put in your life to just keep yourself from you know, temptation and you know, going into trouble and that type of thing? And I said, one of the things that, that I do is when I travel, I never travel alone. If my wife can't go with me, I always bring somebody else from you know, one of our elders or one of our guys with me. And, and I told him this, I said, you know... I've never, I love my wife, and I've never, ever, ever been tempted to stray. And I am fortunate I have never, ever had any issues with pornography. And I know for some of you that's hard to believe because that's your, your struggle, but that's just never been, um, you know, my, my thing. But I'll tell you this, you know why I, I don't travel alone? I don't trust my flesh. I don't trust my flesh. I know that my flesh is capable of the worst things. And so I don't want to give an opportunity. So I look at it and somebody goes, that just sounds so weak, Pastor Rob. No, no, no. I would rather be safe than sorry. And you know what? That just puts my wife at such ease. Because you see, my wife, unfortunately has heard in my 28 years of ministry, she has heard of way too many pastors who have committed adultery on their wives and blown up their families. And for a while, I mean, every time, you know, we'd hear of somebody in our Calvary Chapel movement that did that, my wife would punish me for, for what they did. Like, it was like, Jesus would get all angry. And I'd be like, I didn't do anything. And she's like, but you're one of them. I mean, you know, that was like her mentality. I'm sure your wife had been like that. So it's just, it, it's, I'd rather be safe than sorry. It puts my wife at ease. I know, I don't trust my flesh, guys. I don't. So I don't want to give any opportunity for my flesh. 
You might think that's weak. I think that's wise. So Nehemiah, he owns the sin of the nation, and we need to do that. We need to do that as a church. It's easy for us to point the finger at those liberal politicians, right? It's easy for us to do that. But have we been the salt and light that God has called us to be as his church? Are some of the problems in our culture because we as the church have dropped our guard? Are some of the problems in our culture because we have failed to stand for righteousness or when we did, it was just way too late? There are one million babies that get aborted in this country every single year. Could we have done more years ago to prevent that? I think that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's realizing. I need to own this. And you know, you've heard this before. When we point the finger at someone, those liberal politicians, we have three fingers pointing back at us. That's what's happening here. He's owning this. And so we must own the problem. We must say, hey, it's sin. It's compromise. It's easy for us to point at our wife or point at somebody else. And and we have to, to be real about our own sin and our own compromise and our own stuff. And once you own your sin, and, and only then are you ready for the solution to the problem, which Nehemiah gives us that too. The fifth thing about the kind of person that God uses is that they know not just what the problem is, but they know what the solution is. Look at verse 8. He says, remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as my dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What's the solution? It's repentance. Look at verse 9. It says, if you return to me. Repentance, Tony talked about this on Sunday. It's having a a change of mind. That's where it starts. A change of mind about our sin, where we stop rationalizing our sin, and we're going to own it. We're going to call it what it is. So it's a change of mind that then affects us in a way that it, it becomes a change of heart. And then that change of mind that leads to a change of heart leads to a change of direction where we say, okay, I was going this way toward my sin and I'm doing an about face and now I'm going this way toward God. The key is repentance. It's returning. It's turning from our sin and turning to the Lord. Listen, my friends. The answer for our country, hear me close. Don't tune me out. The answer for our country is not who gets in the White House. Who gets in the White House can help. They can change some things. But the only hope for our nation is our nation turning from our sin and turning back to God. And that's what we call revival when that happens. America doesn't need a president. We need a king. And his name is Jesus. Amen? And you know, I'll just say this, and, and I don't, you know, maybe you didn't like him, but, but as a president, I really, really liked 
um, George Bush Jr. I, I, I liked him, especially his first term. I just thought, this guy is like not a politician. I just really liked him. But I, I feel like he missed an incredible opportunity on 9-11. If you think back to 9-11, our country was shaken, Right? Nothing like this ever happened. We were shaken. We're like, what in the world is going on? Churches all over the nation that next Sunday were packed. We had a couple hundred people came forward that day. Remember what our president did? He got on national TV and he spoke to the nation and he said, they're not going to keep us down. We're America. And we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and show them that they can knock us down, but they can't knock us out. That, that was his message. It was kind of, remember that? Something along those lines. And it was a great opportunity, missed opportunity to say, God allowed this because we've been far from him. And we need to turn to it. It was a moment that, that was missed, I think, on an incredible scale. But the application for us, though, is like Nehemiah. We need to, to not cast blame, but to acknowledge that we have sinned, to repent. It's Second Chronicles 7.14. You know it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's the solution. So the kind of person that God works through is someone who is burdened by the pain and distress around them, responds to that with fasting and prayer, has a right view of God, has a right view of the problem, has a right view of the solution, that it's repentance. And here's the sixth thing. Don't miss it. They make themselves available. Look at verse 11. He prays, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day. Now catch, don't miss this last part. And I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's he talking about? Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Nehemiah discerns that somehow the king was going to be used in meeting his need. And this is the sixth thing about the kind of person that God uses is they make themselves available. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's saying, God, I'm available. And Lord, if you want to use me, give me mercy in the sight of the king. It's been well said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but it's getting God's will done on earth. And oftentimes that's God moving in our hearts. Stirring us, burdening us. As we're going to see, we'll see this next week, that Nehemiah, he spends three months praying and fasting and seeking God. And this whole time, his heart is broken. He never gets out of this. And one day, the the king is going to notice. And Nehemiah is going to respond. He'll say, why are you so sad? You've never been sad in my presence before. And Nehemiah is going to say, why shouldn't I be sad when what's going on with my people our nation and the king will be say well what do you want to do and nehemiah has a plan 
Because that's what happens. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But when you're praying and you're fasting and seeking God, you know what he does? He gives you a vision. And that's what he does. He gives Nehemiah a plan. Nehemiah makes himself available, and God is going to raise him up. Now, here's how I think about this. He has it made in Shushan. He's got this great job. He's in this great position. You know, he's, he's, he's around wealth and prosperity and luxury every single day as the king's cupbearer. He's in comfort and in security there in the palace. He's free from all of this. But Nehemiah was like, Lord, I realize you've blessed me. But, but what's one of our core values? We've been blessed for what? To be a blessing. You've blessed me. You've put me in this position, but I, I'm, I'm recognizing you've blessed me to be a blessing, so Lord, I'm available. And this is where I want to leave you tonight. Are you available? Are you available? Are you one who's saying, God, here I am, you can send me. You can use me. Is your heart burdened for something that you see going on? in your world, in your sphere of influence. Something that just keeps coming back. That's the Lord. He's burdening your heart because he wants to do something with you and through you. It would have been so easy. How many, I mean, I've done this. How many of us have done this? It would have been so easy for for Nehemiah to think, you know, that's, that's 1,500 miles away. I'm here, that's there, what can I do? Nehemiah didn't do that. Nehemiah was like, I know God wants me to do something, so I'm available. I'm available. Lord, we thank you for this great picture that we have of Nehemiah. And Lord, we want to be men who are available. And so God, I pray that tonight you would break our hearts. Lord, I pray tonight that you would do something in each one of us as we spend the rest of our time this evening in prayer together. Thank you, Lord. 